Hi everyone, and welcome to Fashion Decipher. My name is Sean Williams, and on this episode, we have a new designer that we're adding to our designer thread, and that's Anne Lowe. If you don't know her name, or you think you have never heard of her name, but you have seen her work, you know, Anne Lowe is one of the designers that I feel that doesn't get connected to the work that she has done. But I do believe that that's changing, slowly, but it is changing. The biography that um, was written about her called Something to Prove, and that's a book that I read a couple of months back. Um, and it's a very short read, so if you're interested, definitely check that out. Um, but there's also a plethora of information about Anne Lowe online. So if you're interested, please definitely look into looking her up as well, as well as listening to this podcast episode. So let's get into Anne Lowe's you know, history and how she became a designer. Anne Lowe was born in Alabama in 1898, and she came from a long line of uh, seamstresses. You know, fashion was something that ran in her family. Her grandmother, um, Georgia Cole, made clothes for a plantation mistress uh, before she was freed. And her mother, Jane Lowe, specialized in embroidery. Together, all three of them started a dress company in Montgomery. You know, and for Anne, you know, she kind of became obsessed as a young girl before the forming that uh, seamstress company with flowers. And she saw beauty and flowers and a nature everywhere that she looked. In the neighborhood where she lived, the book says that, you know, she was keen at looking at azaleas and dogwood trees um, and lilac. You know, all these things had these beautiful foliage to them, you know, and then you'll see this, you know, show up again in Anne Lowe's work as we go on into the book. I will say that Anne Lowe's skill is definitely part of what got her. She was at the time that, you know, her mother and her grandmother decided to form that seamstress company. Um, just as a kid, she played for hours and hours with the scraps of fabric left behind on the floor um, of the sewing room where her mother and grandmother worked. And, you know, she spent a lot of her time kind of designing these flowers made from like multiple fabrics that were left on the ground. Um, and she had this ability to make these like gorgeous renditions of flowers that she seen with her eye. Um, and of course, all of them were very different. They weren't alike at all. And they just definitely influenced and became her trademark on almost every gown that she made later on. During the time that she did decide to, they did decide to forge and become this, you know, seamstress company, you know, her mom suddenly passed away when she was 16. And Anne decided to pick up a lot of the commissions that her mother had, which included the First Lady of Alabama. You know, her skill set and her um, designs became well known. And, you know, that went on to connect to her. And that's why they wanted to work with her. And a lot like Elizabeth Keckley's story, I know Anne talked about, you know, having to fit in the, you know, the O'Neills who became governor at the time needed, felt like they had to fit in as well. And, you know, they felt that Anne Lowe's designs would help them do that. They wanted to look like society, high-class society ladies, you know, and they wanted to showcase that look. And Anne Lowe's designs just definitely helped them fit in with, with that. This high expectation of grandeur and, you know, style and fashion. Um, so she made dresses for Governor O'Neill's wife and their daughters and other members of Alabama society. And at the time that, you know, she lost her mom, she was able to still forge ahead, even though she was grieving and she had, you know, such a hurt behind her and she just was able to keep carrying on. And that strength allowed her to start her own business. Her grandmother died, you know, a little after that or so, and other members of the family, you know, helped Anne continue the business in Montgomery. When she was out and about, 
they seen her as a very stylish young black woman, just dressed to a T and that, you know, that was Anne, you know, that's how she dressed. You know, she speaks, in the book, it speaks about that she went to a department store in, in Montgomery, it was like a major department store. And, you know, a woman walked up to her. She was like really noticing her from the background and, you know, like a lot of um, black shoppers, you have this feeling that, you know, maybe this person is following me. Maybe they think that, I'm, you know, we've all, you know, black people have definitely experienced this one way or the other. But, you know, the woman wanted to come up to her and, you know, asked her where she got the clothes from that she had on. And, you know, the woman was a resident of Tampa, Florida. And she was a wife of a wealthy, I want to say wealthy Floridian. I'm not really sure what, you know, she did at the time, but she asked her if she can come and, you know, dress her and her daughters who were members of Tampa's elite social set for their wedding, you know, in the near future. You know, Anne was obviously thrilled at this. And she just realized that, you know, I want to do this. This is exciting. This is the next step in her career. It took her out of Montgomery. You know, she realized though, she was also married <laughs> and she had a son, you know, and she had a family and she just didn't want to, you know, leave that or disrupt that. And she wanted to think that, you know, what this decision may affect their, their lives. So she decided to um, leave her husband. Her husband was unhappy with their marriage. You know, he wanted Anne not to be a career woman. He wanted Anne to stay at home and raise a, a child and be a wife and a mother. And, it, you know, even though Anne Lowe tried to do it, it just wasn't in her to do it because her dreams of fashion and, you know, what was always calling at her and nagging at her. And she, she knew that if she dedicated her time, she couldn't let it go. So she left her husband, took her son, and um, headed a train for Tampa. You know, she threw caution to the wind and just went. You know, a lot of times in these books that you read, a lot of people do this, this courage to step forward in a way that they never have done, got them somewhere that they have never been. And, you know, she got down to Tampa, Florida, and they recognized Ann Lowe's work, said that, you know, she was so talented. She just needed a little refinement. And herself agreed, you know, and definitely think that she needed to kind of refine that her dressmaking skills she decided to attend the S.T. Taylor School of Design in New York City, which is no longer open. And they supported that. They backed Anne and they said, you know, go get your degree, your education and come back. And, you know, she left this place where she was becoming very successful and went to school. You know, and she came to New York City, like the fashion capital of, you know, United States. And when she got here, you know, she thought, you know, I made it. Like, you know, I, I came to New York City and... I'm coming to this you know, new school and I'm going to learn and it won't be as bad as it is for me in the South, but it was just as bad. You know, you know, in New York, you know, a lot of people realize that the discrimination is not so upfront in your face. Sometimes a lot of times it's very covert and she definitely experienced that here. The director of the school came to meet her and they were shocked to find out that she was a black woman. They only corresponded with each, with each other with paper, with mail. So there was no photo or word of race came up. So they had no idea that Anla was Black. Most of the students who went to the school refused to work with her. They wouldn't partner with her with projects. They refused to work in the same room with her. So Anla was segregated in New York City in 1917 and had to work alone in a separate classroom than the rest of the students. And a lot of the students there 
you know, and the teachers didn't think, you know, a black girl from the South could succeed in the fashion world. Nonetheless, Anne Lowe kept at it and she succeeded and she completed her two-year program in one year. She got that degree and she, or certificate, and she left and returned to Tampa. You know, when she came back to Tampa, more educated with her skill set, Tampa had this, you know, tradition that they had going on at the time for like 15 years and is called Gasparilla. With Gasparilla, women would dress all up. It was like this huge celebration and decided to show off some of the things that she had learned in, in her year of study. And she came back and here was this woman, you know, dressing all the women from this time. And what's interesting about it, like, the museum in Tampa has some of the dresses, I want to say a couple of dresses that Anne Lowe designed for the Gasparilla. It's interesting to see some of that, you know, because you can see some of her technique. I think it's also in 3D where you can move the dress around. So it's, it's interesting that some of her work is still there. You know, like this is a, something, a part that I didn't know at all. And it is here that she found, back in Tampa, she found, you know, a new love. She remarried to someone and, you know, her son and her was living with him. And Unfortunately for Anne Lowe, love just did not work for her. A lot like the first one, the husband didn't want a working woman. Anne says, my husband left me. He said he wanted a real wife, not one who was forever jumping out of bed to sketch dresses. So although she was excelling so well at her career, you know, her love life just was not good at all. And she just persevered. She just kept at it. And she was excellent at designing and producing all types of clothing, but it was really in the ball gowns and the gowns for cotillions is where she flourished the most. And it seemed to be the part where she, you know, she loved, she had this special touch with those types of gowns. And with the Gasparilla approaching every year, you know, wealthy people who wanted to attend approached Anne Lowe to make their dresses or clothes for them. And, you know, for many years, and made dresses for uh, people who attended, uh, the wealthy people who attended Gasparilla. They also said, you know, one of the wealthy social elite said, if you didn't have a dress by Anne Lowe at Gasparilla, you might as well stay home because they were all beautiful dresses and they were all designed by her. You know, speak for the book talks about in 1965, a Tampa Tribune article paid tribute to Anne. It says any woman that worn her creations 40 years earlier was still raving about them. You know, she just was an incredible designer. And, you know, ladies would recall the Anne, Anne Cole dresses, you know, in great detail, you know. So although fame and fortune came to her in Tampa, you know, Anne had knew that there was something else waiting for her. There was this larger piece of the pie. And with the support of people in Tampa for the second time, because they supported her when she went to school, she decided to leave Tampa again, you know, which a lot of people would say like, you know, why would you leave when you're at the height of your career down here? You know, like, why would you make that step forward? But the same thing that happened when she left Montgomery, Alabama, you know, she had a great little career there and she made her way to Tampa. It was time for her to take the next step. And you'll see how courageous Anne is. And she does this consistently throughout her story. And she, again, steps forward and she packed up all her bags and the money that she saved went back to the fashion capital of the United States, which is New York. And Anne Lowell moved to Harlem. You know, Harlem is always synonymous with fashion and um, just, you know, Black culture. And it was just rich in that. And, and I, I feel Anne probably felt that this is where she should be. So she started her own shop. She had a small shop on a third floor loft and she began making a name for herself in a, ve a very competitive field, you know, in, in fashion. 
for a black woman, that's extremely hard. So shortly after Anne got to Harlem, um, this is the time that the stock market crashed and America was in a Great Depression. Um, there was a huge amount of unemployment and it just was like the, the not the perfect time to try to come to New York to start a, a business of any sort. But again, in the face of adversity, you know, Anne seems to thrive as we continue to, to talk about her story. You see that things like this don't stop her for you know, her getting to where she needs to go. And you'll see that consistently. She you know, still had to make money. She still had to make a name for herself. She had to support herself and her son. So she began design dresses for other design houses. And there was plenty that she worked for. And the houses that were attached to the labels were not hers, you know, although they were her designs. Anybody knows that you partner with another brand, they're going to keep, you know, the, a larger share of profits because it's their name writing on the label. They're going to pay you whatever the structure of the agreement is. They're going to pay you accordingly. Of course, you know, she didn't get paid what she deserved for those dresses, but, you know, she had to continue to work. She had to build up her reputation so she continued to make those dresses for, you know, different companies, you know, across, and she was building up herself and her name to the New York elite. Even though Anne wasn't personally interested in designing for movie stars, some of the design houses that she worked for certainly were interested. One of Anne Lowe's designs was selected and worn by Olivia de Havilland as she accepted her Best Actress Oscar for To Each Their Own. It was a beautiful gown and had all these wonderful intricate flowers on them. The only issue is Anne's name was not on the label. She was working for Sonia Gowns at the time. So Sonia Rosenberg name appeared on the label. Anne was to report on Fashion Week, even though she really wasn't a part of it. Fashion Week, you know, of course, is in New York and Milan and London. And one of the clients that she worked for she went on a trip with to Paris and in, in, in Paris and met Christian Dior. They were finally introduced. Miss Marjorie Merriweather Post, a client of Anne's, found the opportunity to introduce to two designers. By the time Dior's fashions were marketed under the label The House of Dior, Miss Merriweather Post introduced the two, by, two to Dior by saying, Dior, she's the head of the American House of Lowe just to give her an equalizer to who she was at the same level of Christian Dior. And, you know, Anne's working arrangement with these other designer stores, taking her all through the Depression years um, and World War II, you know, she was, you know, getting to the point that she was able to open her own studio in New York City. And she opened it on Madison Avenue. She opened a dress salon. And Anne changed her label from Anne Cole to Andy Cohen labels of Tampa to Anne Lowe. And that was a name that was soon become synonymous with Anne Lowe and all the wealthy elite in New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Washington, and all over the Northeast. These clients knew of her elegant gowns and luxurious fabrics, and they were adorned with handmade flowers. It was just like her signature on all of her pieces, as well as the beading and the fringe and any other ornamental detail. At this time, you know, Anne definitely described herself as a design snob. And she kind of broke down what that meant. And she said, like, I love my clothes. Um, and I'm particular about who wears them. I am not interested in sewing for cafe society or social climbers. And she didn't, you know, cater to the Marys and the Sues of the world. And she sews for the families of the social register. 
and being who she was at the time and already designed a dress that was worn by an Oscar-winning um, actress, she had a right to feel the way she did, you know, and she was a part of that upper echelon of designers. You know, the type of people that she was designing for was the Rockefellers, the Roosevelt's, the DuPonts, Lodge, Pulse, the Whitney's, the Dillons, the Rothschilds, Austin Kloss, and the Bouviers. So, you know, it wasn't unusual that because Anne Lowe was known for her, you know, debutante gowns, that people would come from all over, from the Midwest to from the Southeast, all over to New York to have her or have to be fitted for one of her gowns. She began to design clothes, not just under her name, but to under other houses' name because she had to be paid in order to, of course, pay rent and she had to sign a feed. She had a son to feed. And unfortunately with this, when you design for someone else, and this probably happens still to this day, depending on how your contract is written, you know, most of the partner comp company, you know, keeps the larger percentage of the money and all the profits that you make. You know, and although she was like, okay, this is me paying my dues, she knew that, you know, this was a stepping stone for her and she had to make a name for herself. She had to put herself out there and she felt that at some point her name would be on these labels, you know, so she continued to work as hard as she could. They did eventually carry some of, you know, pieces in Anne's name. Anne just was, you know, working consistently hard and really felt that if she can get to a place that she needed to be, she would do so. So, you know, of course, in New York, you know, it had its, you know, it has Fashion Week. Fashion Week is also held in Paris and in London and in Milan, you know, and of course, Anne, being an unknown, wasn't really asked to participate in any of these Fashion Weeks. But she was asked, you know, like, why come to New York? And she just knew, you know, when she said, I knew if I ever came to New York that she would make it. So, you know, even though she wasn't where she needed to be, she had this feeling and she went with it. You know, and Anne preferred, as we talked about before, she preferred like the big gowns and she wanted to do the big cotillion dresses. But she knew when she was designing for other people, she couldn't do what she really felt was like at her heart, at her core. So she had to make the dresses that they asked her to make. They were more like at the time, the style was more long and slim and in synthetic fa fabric and not the billowy dresses that she was used to making. And it was through these connections and made the absolute dress of the time. It was with Lee's sister. And we all know her as Jacqueline Bouvier or Jackie Kennedy or Jackie Onassis or Jackie O. Anne Lowe made her wedding gown on the day that she mar married John F. Kennedy, you know, a senator of Massachusetts. And the dress that has been photographed everywhere, this dress is just world-renowned. It's just that no one knew a Black designer named Anne Lowe made it. And it was for years, the book says that Janet Austin Claus wanted her daughter's uh, wedding dress to be elegant fairy tale ball gown, but Jackie herself didn't. Jackie O didn't, or Jackie Kenny didn't want to have this big ball gown dress. She just really wanted a more sleek look, a more refined, modern look of a gown, but that's just not what her mother wanted. And it says, and there's an article the book refers to in December 12th, 1964, an issue of a Saturday Evening Post, seems to refuse his version of the design of the wedding dress. You know, in the article it says that Anne remembers that Jackie, when describing what she wanted for a wedding dress, said she wanted a tremendous dress, a typical Anne Lowe dress. So there's like refuting stories on both ends of who, at what she actually wanted or who actually wanted it for Jackie. But it, nonetheless, 
you know, this dress that we all know today that Jackie O wore for, you know, marrying John F. Kennedy was this short sleeve wedding dress made with yards and yards. I think it was 50 yards of ivory silk taffeta, you know, and they had interwoven bands of tucking formed, the book says like fitting hugged bodice at the top. So if you remember seeing the photo of the dress, it has like a tight top and it just like poofed out as most of the dresses that Anne Lowe made when she did debutante gowns or cotillion dresses, you know, that's just kind of what she did. And it had a portrait neckline. You know, and it was inside the skirt. The book says it is inside the long bouffant skirt that the intricacy of designs that stood out. It had all these interwoven bands of tucking that was similar on the bodice, but they formed these large circular designs and they floated around the skirt. And these things became so eye-catching. You know, you saw them and they stood out, even though it was this one whole color, but the designs kind of stood out to you. And they had tiny wax flowers tucked discreetly, you know, around the skirt. What people don't know about this dress, like the story about this dress is right before the wedding party, party disaster struck, you know, and true form of Anlo, the strength that this woman had, two months, you know, she was preparing to make this dress. You know, she did all this intense work with her, with her, uh, her team. And finally, the dress was completed in less than two weeks before the wedding date. Anne and her assistants could relax, and they hoped that they had captured the essence of what, you know, Jackie O wanted and her mom wanted. But unbeknownst to either one of them, you know, there was a waterline break at Anne's studio, and it spewed gallons of water upon all the completed bridesmaid dresses, including the wedding dress. So all the wedding party dresses were ruined. When Anne found this out, you know, she knew, she knew that she needed to have finished this and disaster or not, she was a perfectionist and this was not going to stop her from making this dress. She allowed herself in the book, it said it allowed, she allowed herself to cry for a short period of time and she attacked the problem. I identify with this because I'm just a solution-based person. You know, I'm all about getting the job done and all about finding a solution so I can respect this in her. You know, so she only let herself cry for a short amount of time. She went out and she purchased more fabrics and hired extra help to assist her. And they were already exhausted because you think about it, two months, they've been working on this dress nonstop and the bridesmaid dresses, it's a lot. And they had to get it in a short time. So they worked together the whole day and into night, and they recreated 10 dresses, what they had spent two months of creating. And they did this in such a short period of time. They got it done, you know, and um, the book references another book by Rosemary E. Reed Miller and the author of that, she was the author of the book, The Fabric of Time. And that's not available on Amazon. I tried to, you know, the, the paperback is, but the Kindle version is available. So if you're interested, check that out. Rosemary E. Miller and Anne's niece, Dr. Lenore Cole Alexander, tells the story of Anne arriving at the front door of the state. When she got there to deliver the dresses, she was told to go around to the tradesman entrance. Anne is said to have remarked to the person who opened the door. She said, if I have to enter, if I have to enter by the back door, the bride and the bridesmaids will not be dressed for the wedding. And then of course, they open the door, the front, to the front of the, the, the estate. You know, and the wedding dress cost her five hundred dollars in nineteen fifty-three, and by the time Anne had purchased all the fabrics and paid the rent to her studio and all her assistants and extra help she had after the you know the water break, you know she came to realize that her profit ended up going to 
everything that happened after the disaster, she lost all of it for something that she was supposed to make over $700,000. She ended up suffering a $2,000 loss. You know, she never mentioned it to the Austin Claus and the Bouvier or the Kennedy families, but in time, they all found out. And just felt in the back of her mind, you know, she had this confidence that anyone wrote anything about the dress that Jackie O or Jackie Kennedy wore, especially after becoming the first lady and mentioned her name, it would help her out and she could come out of this debt. You know, she wouldn't be as hurt as she was when it, when it came to finances. But of course, it didn't work this way. Anne read, um, in the book, it said that Anne read an article in the Ladies' Home Journal in 1961, and it characterized Anne Lowe as a colored woman dressmaker, not haute couture. And that devastated Anne, of course, and it devastated her enough for her to write the First Lady on April 5th. She just, she never received a response from Jackie Kennedy about it. You know, she never heard about it again, and not having her name mentioned as the person who designed the dress really hurt Anne's career. She couldn't have taken off the way she could have or, you know, could have went into the black with her finances if her name was mentioned. So it just, it just, it, it hurt her in more ways than one, you know, just not mentioning who designed the dress and instead of referring her to a colored woman dressmaker really, really hurt Anne. It really fueled Anne to keep going. And she made a dress for, and you heard me speak about this earlier, Marjorie Merriweather Post. You know, she was the heiress to the Post Cereal Company, and which was later named to General Mills. She ended up designing a dress for her. The dress that she wore was in a formal portrait by painter Douglas Kander. And she chose to wear it and low down in 1952. You know, so she kept, she kept at it, even though, you know, life had this way of consistently, you know, hurting her and sometimes not getting to where she felt that she needed to be. You know, people who knew Anne knew that she was just like this really nice woman. And, and I guess they wanted to see her get to where she had to be as well. Um, and they tried to help as much as they could, but not helped her enough. And, you know, Anne moved on. You know, the only problem with Anne Lowe, she just allowed people to consistently lowball her for her creations. You know, they often talked her into lowering her prices even further than what they already are. They were already a low amount in comparison to what they would have paid if they got Couture or anybody else designer brand. But, you know, she never, the book says, never seemed to consider the difference between what it costs to make the gown and what, you know, the design and then what she charged over. She didn't add those things up in her time. You know, she didn't add those things up. And she just was so obsessed with the joy of making the gown and the joy it gave her that she just really didn't look at her, her profit margin. And, and this was part of her financial problems that consistently came up, you know, and, and stepdaughter says that she didn't sew for money. You know, it was just like the pleasure of designing. That's where it came from. And she just seldom charged what the designs were worth. And again, this also connects to Elizabeth Keckley because in the book, if you go back to the other design thread that I did um, a couple of weeks ago, it talks about how they always undercharged her and convinced her that they didn't have the money to pay, which was totally untrue. And this is a consistent thing that happens with Black creatives. You know, so it's things that you would think that is, over with, but no, nope, it's still happening, happening today. It's just, you know, Anna's being underpaid. She's undercharging. And she just, I guess she always had this idea that things would change for her. And sometimes they did, you know, she didn't always get to cover her costs. 
as she began to move on, she had a personal disaster and it struck in February, 1958. Author, her son was killed in an automobile accident, which was her only child. A lot, again, that, you know, mirrors Elizabeth Keckley, who lost her son in the war. You know, that was her only child and she just never went to another party without him or because he was her escort. He was her, you know, by her side. You know, and it was definitely another hurtful loss for her between her mom and her grandmother and then her son. You know, and she just was disinterested in being competitive with pricing. You know, she, it just, it just was really downhill for her at that point. So much so that in 1961, problems continued to build and the IRS came calling. You know, they wanted Anne to pay her back taxes of $12,000 and her records were in complete disarray because she just didn't pay attention to finances um, and the IRS seized and closed her salon. And it was sad. She was just living this dream during this time. She was losing her eyesight. You know, in 1962, like a year after the IRS closed down her shop and underwent surgery to remove an eye that was ruined by glaucoma, later developing cataracts in the remaining eye. You know, that eye, however, was saved but, you know, her day of just being this force of fashion was slowly coming to an end. But, you know, that didn't stop her. Like, Anne just kept forging ahead. And that's the strength of Anne in this book is, you know, just amazing. During this time of her recovering from her eye surgery, she received a generous anonymous gift with money. You know, when she left the hospital after one of her eyes were removed, she learned that her back taxes had been paid in full by, by an unknown friend. And at some point, someone had written that Jackie Kennedy was told of Anne's plight. And there had no been per no personal response to Anne's letter upon her writing to her about her not being named about the designer of her wedding dress. But, you know, she felt that upon learning an anonymous benefactor, that it was none other than Jackie Kennedy who actually donated that money, which... Jackie did do this often, even with her own family. She did this, if anybody's familiar with uh, Grey Gardens, you know, Jackie and her sister Lee, even though they were, you know, related to Edie and Big Edie, they donated and saved money with that. A lot of times they did it anonymously. So there was still private debt, even though that was like a, you know, a big plus to her, you know, she still had over $10,000 of debt, you know, and this is all to how, you know, all the people that she purchase fabric from over the years. They were in small numbers, but they kept moving up. So eventually in 1963, she had to file for bankruptcy, unable to maintain her salon, and went back to working for other people. For a short time, she worked for Madeline Couture. It was through the shop that she, found her, she finally had her first and only fashion show. You know, it was described in the book as a small champagne affair with models coming for her client. And her eyesight kept steadily decreasing. You know, she continued to work for others. Uh, the book uh, notes that in 1961 to 1972, she designed for Saks Fifth Avenue's Adam Room. She continued to design privately for those in, in the Menorcas of Dallas, I Magnum in San Francisco, and Henry Bedell in New York. You know, she tried. And for participants in, 19, in 1961's Ask Her Ben Ball, you know, her, the, the results were unforgettable. So it was during the 1965 appearance, Anne Lowe appeared on the Mike Douglas show. And, you know, on the show, Lowe explained the driving force behind her work was not a quest for fame or fortune, but a desire to prove that a Black woman can be a major, you know, dress designer. And she just had a true love for designing. 
that's what kept her going. You know, she kept going because of her love of design. In 1965, she again opened her own shop. It was called Ann Lowe's Originals on Madison Avenue in New York City. And later, Calvin Klein would um, have his own design studio on the second floor of the same place. So that was very interesting. And that connection the book makes that Ann Lowe was now amongst people of, of the fashion world elite. And it's just, it's just amazing that, you know, she just kept going for, for so long. And throughout so many obstacles that came her way, she kept battling them one by one. She just, just refused to give up. And, you know, as she aged, she kept going. You know, she left, you know, lost her sight altogether. What she would do with people in, you know, her staff members, she would have them draw, like, what she had seen in her head, the designs that she was making up. You know, she just, she kept going all the way up to the end. You know, she had to finally retire from her career in 1972. And she tried for a very long time to keep her Harlem ground floor apartment for as long as possible. And she lived there for over 30 years, you know, and finally, you know, her family and her friends had to admit that she needed round the clock care. She spent the last five years of her life with, you know, her adopted daughter in Queens, um, Ruth Alexander. And this was, she stayed there until the end of her life, which, you know, was in 1981 at the age of 83. You know, basically, you know, Anne made her mark upon fashion, you know, and, and from someone who started Alabama and she, you know, moved, you know, from Alabama to Florida, from Florida to New York, to traveling to Paris and meeting Dior. She just left such a beautiful legacy behind. And I, and I just think that it is time for um, everybody to uh, really come in and for, you know, what she has done. You know, Anne Lowe was a person that Christian Dior himself admired her skills, you know, when they met. So, you know, this is just someone who's just talented. I think more and more as we talk about her and get her name out there and share about her. Um, and like I said, definitely check out the book, Something to Prove. Definitely look into all the information that is referenced about Anne Lowe online. Just really get to know Anne Lowe's work. I will be posting some of her work on um, the Fashion Decipher Instagram page. Definitely take a look at that and just see some of the beautiful work that Anne Lowe has done in her career. Um, and we just need to celebrate Black designers and really put them you know, where they belong in the upper echelons of fashion designers. So thank you for listening to this episode of Fashion Decipher, and I will speak to you next week. Bye. Hi guys, it's Sean. Make sure you visit our website, fashiondecipher.com, to get a visual on what we're talking to you about. Check out pics from events, of guest speakers, and exhibits. If you miss anything we post, you can visit our archives page. Also, while you're there, hit that subscribe button. Leave your email, and if you like, a comment. Tell us what you think or what you would want to hear on an upcoming episode. Don't forget to follow and friend Fashion Decipher on social media. Check out what we're up to. Speak with you next week. Thank you.